You are listening to Killer. This is case number 25. Edward Wayne Edwards, part 2. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. If you're tuning into this episode and you didn't catch part one of the series, make sure you jump back one episode and catch part one. Last we left off, Edward Wayne Edwards was turned in by his daughter April Bellaccio on suspicion of committing a murder that had been unsolved for 29 years in the state of Wisconsin. April called authorities after consulting with her family about potentially turning her father in. As it turned out, police in Wisconsin spoke to Edwards after the double murder of Tim Hack and Kelly Drew. Investigators followed the lead and they obtained DNA from Edwards at his home in a trailer park in Louisville, Kentucky. Edwards continued to deny involvement. Edwards was arrested and charged with the double murder of Tim Hack and Kelly Drew. After initially denying everything and telling a made-up story, which we discussed last week, he worked with prosecutors to change his plea to guilty. The families of Tim Hack and Kelly Drew were quite relieved as they were not aware of this process taking place. Much of this episode will be told by Ed himself, interviewed by Glenn Miller of the Geauga County Maple Leaf. Okay, what happened with uh, Kelly Drew and Tim Hack in Jefferson, Wisconsin? Was That was rape, right? That was what? Rape? Hell no, it wasn't rape. I've never raped anybody. Right, so they, they found semen. No. Uh, first of all, the girl and I, Kelly, we knew each other. Okay, I, had, I was doing work up there at the, uh, they were the dance hall and the bar and and everything at Iraq and uh, doing carpentry work and rebuilding. My son was helping me, but we lived uh, about three or four miles away in a farmhouse that we had rent had rented. And uh, Kelly and I had been together. It was a wedding reception, and the boy, the man, he was inside. He was arguing over a tractor. He was into tractors, tractor poles, and expensive tractors. He was in there arguing and she didn't want to hear it. She came on up and I was out in the bars right next door. We went on over to the car and uh, we had our fun. Uh, Sexually? Yes. And uh, she went on back and as she went around the corner to go into the uh, reception hall where the, he was coming out and they started arguing. And this arguing, it progressed, oh, a couple hundred feet down toward the end, the end of the building. And now there's no lights down there or anything. And he had pushed her. And so I had walked over. And at that time, uh, it was kind of obvious to him that I was the reason why she, where, where she, he didn't know where she was. And, uh. He pushed her again, she went down, and I hit him in the neck real, very hard. I, I was a husky man then, and we're talking about 1980. And uh, in the neck here, the rabbit punch. Uh, but anyways, he went down, and he stayed down. And I'm bent over to see here. I mean, because I, I didn't mean, I didn't, I, my intent was not to kill him. It was just get him off of her and get him away from me. Well, as it worked out, then she started piling on me. And she's talking about, he's dead, he's dead. And she started smacking me and everything. So I ended up choking her uh, right there. And that's where they both died. But I didn't leave them there. I, let, they, they were, I pulled them back away from the any body because there was nothing there. It was all cows and everything out in there and woods and I went down not the front way but around the back way got my van brought it back around the back way got them in the put them in the uh, van and and drove off and exposed them in a uh, cornfield uh, she was not raped and that's how that came about but you had sex with her yeah I had sex with her on oh, Five or six occasions. Okay. 
Wasn't there a better way to deal with that situation? Explain to police that that he had attacked you and you had acted in self-defense? No. Uh, when I first of all was having sex with her, uh, I had a family, had five children, and uh, you were cheating on your wife and your family. Yes, yes. And uh, I had a record from way back. Nothing there, but then, uh, uh, but no, that that was for my lifestyle and everything. No, I just killed two people. No way in hell was I about to call the police up because I wasn't from there and uh, uh, I'd have been convicted. The confession to the hack and Drew murders are chilling. Edwards still sticks to a variation of his original confession to police. He still claims to have never raped Kelly Drew. So my question to you, Craig, is do you believe in his non-rape claim? I don't believe his non-rape claim because Edwards is a very violent person and just the way he talked and that confession right there, like, oh, I killed them, I loaded them in my van, I drove them to a cornfield and dumped them off. I, I can't stand behind his non-rape claim. When I first listened to his story, I'm on the fence, right? Like, could he have potentially talked his way into being with this woman, and then, you know, there's some sort of a, a scuffle that happens when, you know, her boyfriend finds out or whatever, you know, whatever the case may be. I'm not 100% sure what that would be, but it seems to me like, you know, Edwards is pretty darn charming in the way that he speaks and everything. And it seems to me like he could have potentially been seeing Kelly Drew. However, the autopsy later reveals that there were ligatures found around her. And I just can't imagine why you would tie somebody up if you had a consensual consensual sex with them because he kills, you know, Hack. And when he does that, you know, he doesn't tie him up. So why would you have to tie the woman up then? That just doesn't add up to me. To me, it almost sounds like he had tied her up and raped her. And then Hack maybe comes out of the dance hall or wherever they're at and sees what's going on, and Edwards has to kill him because he has now witnessed a rape. To me, that sounds more believable. Yeah, and, or, he just happened upon the two of them and murdered them both, and then, or murdered murdered the man, and then he then goes and, and rapes uh, Kelly Drew. So, I don't know. His story has remained pretty consistent, but he's very, very good with stories, and he's very good at lying, and he rehearses, and he's a master con artist, like to a T. So, you know, you got to really be careful of of what he says and what you pay attention to, you know, because he's he's always trying to manipulate the conversation, and he's always trying to be in control. One thing I missed in that piece of audio, and I'm not sure, maybe I just glossed over it while I was listening, did he say how he killed the guy? Well, he said he rabbit punched him, and then I'm not quite sure if I caught him saying exactly how he murdered him either. Now, I believe the autopsy revealed that Hack had some like sharp wounds to his rib cage, so he'd been stabbed essentially is what what it came down to. I I don't know. I, I might have missed that as well, re-listening back to it. But yeah, I, I know that the autopsy revealed that uh, Hack had been stabbed. Okay. Yeah, I don't think he said that during the, the confession, but he, he killed them nonetheless. He did say he strangled Kelly Drew, but I didn't pick up where he had killed Hack or, or where he had confessed to how he had killed him, just that he had punched him and knocked him out. And one more point I wanted to make, why is it so convenient that these guys always have a van? We've talked about this in the past. Oh, I went and got my van, pulled around, threw him in the back, and then drove him to a cornfield. It's every every time there's a van involved. Oh, I know. No kidding. Don't trust a dude who drives a van. Just don't. If if the man drives the van, he's no good. Sorry to any of you men who drive vans. You might be on my suspect list. Absolutely. Prime suspect number one in most cases. Exactly. I mean, I don't care if you're driving a Honda Odyssey or you're driving the uh, old school Chevy Astro van or the white van. You're just, you're on my list no matter what. Ed was very concerned about getting back to Ohio. He was an elderly man in his 70s in very poor health. 
Edwards did not want to be in Wisconsin. Edwards badly wanted to be back in Ohio, and he wanted the death penalty. Wisconsin was not going to give that to him. So what did that mean? It meant that he conveniently decided to confess to another double homicide. One from Norton, Ohio. The homicide occurred right where he took his daughter April way back in 1977. The park where he told her, here, and she stood there puzzled. Let's go back to uh, this 1977. And you killed Judith Straub and Bill Levecko at uh, close range. And that was, they were in Akron. They were in Akron area couple. In Norton. Why? You didn't even know them, did you? Oh, yes, I knew them very well. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, knew them very well and uh, had uh, told him on uh, different occasions that uh, if he did not stop making eyes and fooling around with my small children and being around them, that he was going to end up getting hurt. And after about the fourth or fifth time I explained that to him, I told him, I said, I'm going to tell you something, Bill. I'm going to kill you if you do it one more time. And it just so happened that Judith, uh, Judith was a prostitute. She used, when we used to go up to town in, in, in uh, 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 now I can't think of it, right up in Wayne County. You were downtown there? That no, we were living in, uh, in Wayne County, uh, right out Route 21. I can't think of the name of the little town up there. But we used to go up there and shoot pool and uh, everything, and she'd be out in the car making money with prostitution and stuff like that. Well, I did not expect her to be with him this particular night. She was, it was dark, she did not recognize me, I know she didn't, and I told her to stay in the car, I wanted to talk to him. And I said, please, because it was about, one, about three o'clock in the morning. And Doylestown was where I was, we were living, uh, this happened. And uh, so I was over there with Bill, talking to him, telling him, and then she insisted to be there. She got out of the car, come on over. And then at that time, Bill told her, says, look, Wayne, there's $500 in her purse in the car. If you want money, why don't you just get it? I said, Bill, do you know what you just did? And at that, that moment, I shot him and killed him. What he just did was tell her who I was. And she started to run. I told her to stop. I wasn't going to shoot her or kill her. Because I only had a single, single gauge shotgun. She come back by the time I had one, another one I put in and I shot her, but I didn't threaten her. Uh, Tell her I was going to say I didn't even give reasons for him. There was no threats. There was no pleading and things like this here. So there you hear Edwards, in his own words, just he just goes through and recounts this second double homicide like it's nothing. And the way that this all unfolded in the order that we're telling the story is that he gets caught for the 1980 murder, but this one happened in 1977. And the big thing here is when Edwards is talking about this, there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes in, in terms of his status with law enforcement and the way that he's going to get convicted for the Hack and Drew murders. He never confesses to the Hack and Drew murders, but he wants out of Wisconsin bad, and he wants to be in Ohio. So he calls up an investigator in Norton. This was their only unsolved homicide and he just you know conveniently confesses and, and the investigators look into it and they determine that it's very credible and he goes through and he you know he, he can he gives his confession to this they they start looking into him and you know they bring him to ohio to convict him but the one thing that he doesn't really know at the, at this point is that his his whole end goal here is to get the death penalty in Ohio. That's his goal. But what he doesn't know and what authorities don't tell him while he's giving his confession that they 
help really get, you know, they, they really coerce it out of him. Uh, I mean, he wants to give it up, but at the same time, they're really trying to get it on tape and everything so that they can convict him for it. But what they don't tell him is that in, in 1972, Ohio suspended the death penalty. And in 1977, when this happened, they still didn't have it. And when you get charged for a murder, you get charged for the year that it happened in, whatever laws were on the books then. So he wasn't going to get the needle, as he would say. So, Craig, what did you think of his confession to this Norton murder? It was definitely a convenient confession from his standpoint, wanting to get extradited back to Ohio. That, But that's my one question with this. And I'm not sure if you know or somebody that listens can weigh in, but how exactly does extradition work? Let's say he committed that murder in Wisconsin on said date, let's say 1980. But we go back and he's committed this in Ohio in 1977 when they don't have the death penalty. Which murder charge trumps the other? Because if he's committed a crime in in Wisconsin and he's already been given a life sentence, how does the Ohio conviction overrule that and how would that get him back to Ohio? That's what I'm kind of confused about that piece of the story. I think it's just a negotiation between the prosecutors in both states. And so my working assumption, and again, audience, you can correct us if we're wrong. My working assumption there is that essentially like Ohio wants to get this confession and they want to be able to prove that he did it, charge him and convict him. And if that means as part of those terms, Edward says, I want to be in Ohio as part of that, then they may go, hey, Wisconsin, I know you've got him here. You're going to convict him guilty of this murder, but can you extradite him to Ohio so that we can charge him and, conf- and you know get his confession and, and convict him? in Ohio for this Norton double murder. And, you know, I, I don't know that they care. You know, from, from Wisconsin's perspective, he's just going to rot in jail till he dies. They don't have to pay for him if he goes to Ohio. Ohio's paying for him. So they probably say, sure, have him. We, we already got what we needed, and you get what you need, and you can house him and pay for him to be in jail. That's very true. And, I mean, that sounds like most likely how it works. Like you said, hopefully if there's somebody listening that knows exactly how that works, it'd be great to hear their opinion or or their insight into how that works. One other question I have is, what do you think about these criminals who say that they want the death penalty and they want to be executed? Do you think the state should act a little bit more with a sense of urgency to carry out their wishes? That's a great question because there's two schools of thought there. You have the people who say, yeah, kill them. They deserve to die and we shouldn't have to pay for them. And then you have the other school of thought, which is, no, they want to die. So do the opposite and make them rot in jail. I'm not really a huge fan of the death penalty personally. I mean, I know why it exists. I have a hard time with it because unless you could 100% say somebody did something or you could guarantee it was always that person, which we cannot, then I have a hard time with it because while I know there are many cases that are very, very provable, there are cases that are not. And those people, you know, who get sentenced to execution and then they die and they never were responsible or maybe they were part of a crime and weren't the main culprit in the crime, but they got fingered for it. And, and they're the ones who I, I just I have a hard time rationalizing that in my mind. So to me, I would be very, very conservative with when we use the death penalty personally. So if an inmate's requesting it, I don't necessarily know that I would give them their wish, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I I would probably be a little less conservative, probably a little bit more on the edge. I think in a case like that where the criminal asks to be put to death, maybe it's something where they need to let the family decide of the victims. Maybe the family says, yeah, go ahead and kill this guy because he is nothing but a dirt bag. But on the other hand, a lot of cases too, the family will say, no, We want this guy to suffer, and we want him to suffer for the rest of his life behind bars with no freedom or no anything. There's just so much going on in that scenario that I don't think you can always cover all your bases, and it's just really hard to determine exactly how that should all go. I don't know. I have a really hard time with doing all that stuff. I don't know. I'm on the fence. Yeah, Uh, same here. I may be coming at it a little less conservatively because there's some people that I feel, and we've talked about them in past episodes, that truly deserve it but never get it. 
but I mean, it's a, it's a matter of the states, if they're upholding the death penalty at that time, like we're discussing here, or it's, it's just a state where they go through 20 years of appeals and it never happens. But it, it, it's a tough thing to talk about. Yeah, for sure it is. I wanted to touch on something else about the uh, Straub and Lavaco murders. So Edwards, he knew Billy Lavaco for some time before the murders happened. And what ended up happening is they worked together doing carpentry work for a while. And Billy would come over to Ed's house for parties every once in a while. And Ed suspected that Billy was touching his daughter, April, who was very young at the time. And Ed even asked April at one point if that was actually happening, to which April denied it, even though she knew it was happening. She didn't want anything bad to happen to Billy just because she knew her dad was kind of crazy. So Ed found out, and he knew that these two would hang out at a bar and shoot pool, and then they would go drive over to the Silver Creek Metro Park in Norton, which, by the way, I've been to several times. I had no idea that this even happened there until researching this case, so it was kind of interesting to me. But anyway, the uh, the couple would go there, they'd make out and do all this stuff, and Ed was hiding in the bushes nearby, near his car, when this happened. And he had rode his bicycle out there, and he was hiding with a shotgun, just waiting. And, and Billy left his car to go take a leak, as he would say. <laughs> and uh, and Ed jumped up on him, like, right away. And, and Billy got back into his car quick, but Ed had the shotgun pointed at him through the window, and he told him to roll the window down. And the whole time, Billy thought Ed was there just to rob them. But he wasn't. He was there to kill Billy. Like, that was his whole plan. It was all premeditated because he thought that he was molesting his daughter, and he wanted none of that. And what's really interesting to me is he knew that Judy Straub would be there, and he still was going to murder her, too. Like, he had no no care for the fact that she was there. Well, during the confession, he kind of acted like he wasn't going to kill her. But as soon as he said, hey, Wayne, she's got $500 in her purse, then he then he snaps up and says do you realize what you just done, which is identify who I am. So then he had no problem killing her then as well. Yeah. The thing is, this was so premeditated. He knew that Billy would be there with her. The only thing that I could think of to where Ed could kind of say, you know, no, I wasn't planning to kill her was if he was planning to kill Billy, like when he was outside of his car somehow, you know, like how he he was hiding in the bushes waiting for him. I don't know if he was waiting for him to get out of the car, kill him, and then take off, and then she would never know who did it, or if it was going to go the way the way that it went down, where you know he got up on the car, killed him, she tried to take off, he kills her because she knows who he is. I have a feeling he was. It was premeditated that he was going to kill both of them all along. I kind of feel like there's a little bit of storytelling there where he didn't want to kill her, but then he mentions his name, so like he has no choice. He's obviously not worried about somebody finding him or giving up what's happening because you can't discreetly kill somebody with a shotgun, especially in a trailer park. Shotguns are very, very loud. So his chances of getting away on a bicycle without anybody seeing him, especially with a probably a shotgun with a shoulder strap over his back, not very good odds there. You said trailer park. I think you meant Metro Park. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not quiet, but in the Metro Parks late at night, nobody's there. I mean, they're supposed to be closed, you know, when the sun goes down. Uh, So there were very few people, if any, there, probably nobody else. And that's why they chose that place to go. Yeah, I I find it fascinating that, you know, he talks about how he's going to, you know, murder, you know, Billy, but he knows that this woman's with him. I think what I think really happened, I think that he, he knew that Judy would be there but and, and that he could potentially have to kill her, and he was okay with that, but he wasn't necessarily there to kill her, if that makes sense. Like, he had already rationalized in his mind that he was going to do it if he needed to. I, I can agree with that. I mean, his sole intention of being there to kill Billy was the fact that he was molesting his daughter, which she was too afraid to tell him about, but you know, later confirmed that that was true. So while those you know two double murders are a big deal. They're not enough to get the death penalty. So following the confessions of both double murders, Edward's outcome was still not what he wanted. 
He wanted to go to Ohio, and he wanted to die. However, the Straub and Lavaco murders weren't going to cut it. Because like we mentioned earlier, in Ohio in 1977, they did not have the death penalty. This meant that Edward's wish to be moved to Ohio could happen. His wish to be executed there could not. He had made friends with an investigator from way back in the day in Ohio. Back when Edwards made buddies with a cop, he acted as an informant. He wanted someone in his pocket that he could trust should he run into any problems. He contacted this person following the arrest for the Hack and Drew murders when he knew he wanted to be in Ohio and he wanted to die. The problem in Ed's eyes was that no one told Ed that his wish to be executed wasn't going to happen due to the suspension of Ohio's death penalty during the time the murders were committed. So Ed had another convenient trick up his sleeve. This boy lived with some foster parents on the other side of town in Burton. And uh, he was 21 when he graduated from high school and he went to school with my kids. He got... The, the, the people there got divorced, and so he ended up going with, living with one of the kids that he used to be there, and, uh, and so anyways, that kid brought him to me one day, he said, I'm going to put him out on the streets in Chardon if you don't want him, he said, because we don't want him, so we took him in and uh, let him live there, and uh, then it was after I started plotting down the road to kill him for the insurance purposes and everything that we had his name changed to Danny Boy Edwards and that but he was not a foster son he was not an adopted son he was a, someone that we had taken in with Danny I saw an opportunity to I mean I was always a schemer I was always thinking of ways of making money I've always been into crime and uh with Danny, I saw an opportunity here at Long Range. It took about a year to set it up, and that's what I did. I set it up to collect the money and ended up getting $250,000 out of it. And uh, uh, it was arranged, it was premeditated, it was thought out, it was planned, and that's what I did. He won AWOL. I sent him the money. He got the money, he got a Greyhound. He went AWOL and went to Columbus, the bus station in Columbus. That's where I went, and that's where I picked him up at, is the bus station in Columbus. He didn't come here. Then I brought him back to the house, and he stayed at our house unbeknown to my wife. He was out in the barn, he was in the car that was parked there. He was in the house, and uh, it was all set up. I'd already had a... Uh, Prior to him going into the military, he took out a, a $50,000 insurance policy named as beneficiary. And then while in the military... Did you ask him to do that? Or he did it voluntarily? No, I asked him to, but... Uh, but that was part of your plan then? That was part of my plan, yes. That started back prior to him going into the military. Uh, then the name change was not effective, was not all the way through yet once he went into the military. When he went into the military, he was Danny Glockner. It was while he was in basic training that uh, uh, the name change went through to Danny Boy Edwards. So at that time, he had to go down and change his name on the records to uh, the insurance policy. Because the insurance policy had been made out to the people that he used to live with that already separated and everything. And matter of fact, one of them was dead. And so he went down and changed his policy over to, and named my wife and I the beneficiaries. And he, uh, he was going to get a medical discharge uh, from the Army because he, he, he couldn't handle it. But it was about three days prior to that, and that's when I talked him into going to AWOL, because he, he, they said he was going to Korea, and he didn't want to go to Korea. So I talked him into going to AWOL, or told him to. He did what I told him. And we went to Columbus. I picked him up in Columbus, brought him back here. And then that was part of the scheme that I put together. And it was, okay, we're going to, I'm re talking to him as to, we're going to make a phone call that he burglarized the house and stole money and, 
and different things like that. And so then when he had it memorized and everything, I took him down to Ledoux and dropped him off the telephone. I went back home and he called me. It was being recorded. Hi, Pops. How are you? And we talked and I'm sorry I burglarized the house and things like that. I said, well, I didn't know you were even in here, Danny. And yeah, and so we went all through that and uh, that he uh, gives the money to another person. And uh, so then uh, it ended, so I went back and picked him up and uh, brought him back to the house. And it was uh, the next night, I think it was the next night, that uh, he ended up losing his life up behind the cemetery because I told him that there was a fellow in Youngstown that was going to come by, pick him up, and hide him out for a couple months, and then he would be clear. He wouldn't have to worry about anything. He believed all this, and it was up there that he where he died, and I had the body partially covered and kept it that way. I went back up there about every three or four months to check because I wanted the body found, but not immediately, but I didn't want to bury it either. So I left it partially covered. And uh, the one time was about a year later when I went up to check on it, the head had been separated from the body through the animals and everything. And uh, I took it with me and took it across the street and threw it up into the field. And the police and everything, they've been looking for it, but they can't find it. It was nothing but the skull. They've been able to, unable to find it. But uh, uh, there was a hundred that uh, found Danny and, uh, and the rest of the story, everybody knows it, uh, where he was found and, and why, but that was set up. And after he was found, it was, oh, I'm not sure, maybe a year later, maybe not as much as a year, that I collected uh, $250,000 on the, from the, uh, the investigation, but uh, the attorney, an attorney representing me, and he got a third of this, so the rest of it we got. And my wife, she was not aware of any of this. I endorsed all the paperwork and forged her name, and and uh, she knew absolutely nothing. She's a very Christian-like woman. Where did the additional, you said it was original, it was a $50,000 policy, where did the other... Two hundred thousand. Did he take out an additional policy? No. When you go in the military, mm -hmm. you can have different amounts. Of, they they give you, and you come out of your pay pay. And he was covered with two hundred thousand dollars. Military. This showed that he did. I mean, that he had burglarized the house and things. This showed that he was back in the area uh, and doing these things. Uh, and I said I had him given money to another person and it all it took the heat it put everything on him as doing all this and other people not me I didn't know anything about it what happened to that phone call that recorded phone call well, recorded was given to the police once he uh, was dead I gave a, a call up uh, I told him he just called and they gave them the tape and they, of everything, and they, so they had to tape. But they come out and check and pick the, the piece of the glass up, had his blood on it, and everything. You used a shot-off shotgun. I, people can't imagine, how does it feel to point a shotgun at somebody and pull the trigger? What were your thoughts at that time? Uh, don't know that I had any other than to... Uh, uh, I had a sawed-off pistol, only this big, that I could hide it easy. Mm -hmm. And I never threatened him with it. I never pointed at him, said I'm going to kill you or anything. I never threatened him, never told I was going to kill him or threaten in any way. We were up there in the back of the cemetery because I had dropped him off and went down and put parked my car at Riverside and walked back up through the woods on that side and come back and uh, 
I told him the guy would be here and he had a duffel bag full of clothes belonging to my children. And I uh, told him the guy would be here, I was there. I said there was some money in that down in the bottom of the duffel bag. And, uh, and he was bent over, kneeling down and get, feeling around. Is when I shot him, he didn't even know I had a shotgun. Is when I shot him in the chest. So you're admitting to being a cold-blooded killer then? In fact, yeah, that's right. In court, uh, his half-sister, uh, Danny Boy's half-sister, uh, Jeanine Copley basically opposed the death sentence because she said, in your case, it, you know, getting the death sentence is an easy escape from having to spend your rest of your life in, in a harsh prison atmosphere and that you've always had your way with people, manipulated people. That is why she opposed this. Okay. What is your reaction to what she said? I, I said nothing in court. I just let her go. Danny and I both tried to find her. She was in prison. She's a drug addict. She's living on Skid Row. Uh, and under the bridge and in boxes and things like this. He tried finding her way back. I was with him when it happened and she was in prison. Okay, and now she's this, this she's hoping to get a dollar somewhere down on the line. And uh, this is her only interest. She didn't have an interest way back then of contacting anybody. And uh, okay, in regards to her saying I should be in prison. She's been there, she knows what it's like. This is, this is the front for her. I have four life sentences right now. Four life sentences running wild. Uh, two of them from Ohio. Two of them I'm doing in Ohio from Wisconsin. That's four. Now I've got the death penalty. Uh, she, had been bugging them up here. She wanted her dog in there with her. They made her get out, get the dog out. She was, it's been a nuisance. Uh, and that's why I didn't, we knew basically what she was going to say. And that's why we, uh, uh, I, I didn't oppose, I didn't say anything back. She said like I don't work or I haven't had a job. I had my own construction business for many years. And uh, because I was paroled from Federal Penitentiary uh, in 1967. Jimmy Hoffa got me a job. I sold with Jimmy. He got me a job driving truck and working dock over in Akron, Local 24. And uh, that's what I was doing. Then I had one in construction, building homes and remodeling and everything. So I've worked and worked hard. But as I said, I didn't say anything. I didn't in any way oppose it. But her point was, the death penalty is an easy way out. You don't have to serve those life sentences. Well, I'm I'm 77 years old. I'm going to be 78 in June. I'm not. I doubt seriously that I'm going to live long enough to even get it in 175 days from now. I'm a sick person. But uh, I I went into this. My plan was, you want to try me for this? I want the death penalty. Jarga County knew nothing about this. They knew, I wasn't even in the radar. They knew I, everything they no, had. No, you, you were a, a person of interest way back. When, when in, in the, during the, after the first murder, you were, you were a person of interest. After the first murder? After, after uh, Danny Boy's murder, you became a person of interest. Um, not long, because they even, uh, I was cleared of the crime. That's why I was able to get the money. I was cleared of it. I was I was set free on it. I was I mean naturally as a suspect. Everybody around was a suspect at that point. But I was not. I'm the one that gave him the tape, talked to Danny and everything. No, I was not. I was not a suspect. I mean I was, but I wasn't. But I was cleared of it to where I was able to go ahead and collect the money uh, from the insurance policy. But isn't the reason you wanted to come to Ohio is that you knew Wisconsin did not have the death penalty and Ohio did and again you wanted the easy way out? No, I wanted to come to Ohio because this is where I'm from.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. So there you have it. That's the confession to the Danny Boy Edwards, Danny Glockner murder from the man himself. Let's break this down a little bit. So Craig, in that audio you hear, Edwards goes on to mention how this is basically premeditated right from the from the jump. He wants to set Danny Boy up and use him to get an insurance policy out of him after he murders him. What'd you make of all that? I'm not surprised from a con man like Edwards. It's very premeditated, very thought out, very planned out. I mean, he thought up this whole scheme to get him to take out life insurance, take him in. I'm a little bit confused as to why he was hiding uh, Danny Boy in his barn, not letting his wife know that he was staying there. I don't know what that source of contention with his wife was, but it was a very thought out meticulous plan. And I believe he ended up getting the money. So the plan worked in the end. Yeah. And what that audio doesn't really detail a lot is the whole scheme that Edwards had set up. So there was a a plan from Edwards using Danny Boy to have him enlist in the military. He took out the insurance policy on him, had him go AWOL. Now he set all of this up. Danny, when he goes AWOL, is like right around the corner from Edwards' house. Like he's not far at all. And he calls Edwards up on the phone and goes through this whole rehearsed script about the whole reason he's going AWOL and all this stuff. And Edwards has him plant very specific information in this phone call that Edwards is also conveniently recording. Edwards turns the recording over to authorities. Authorities, you know, they look at Edwards a little bit, but then they kind of figure this whole thing with Danny Boy and Danny Boy's brother is involved. They're kind of pinning some things on the two of them, essentially. So what it looks like is that like Danny Boy went and like broke in and he stole all this stuff and his brother may or may not be involved and it gets real murky looking and confusing, but it's believable and the authorities just aren't sure what to believe, you know. But Ed gets cleared and he makes the insurance policy claim and he gets it. So his whole thing works. I found also interesting that Edwards goes back and he takes the skull and chucks it into a field. Like, what the hell is that about? I was confused about that as well. What is the purpose of taking the separated skull from the damage that the animals did to the the decomposing body and throwing it into another location? I don't understand that at all. I don't know either. So as part of his negotiations to come back to Ohio. Once he got burnt the first time for not getting the death penalty, which he claims he didn't want, but he really did want because he confesses to this murder because the first time he didn't get it. So I don't know why he was saying in that audio he just wanted to be in Ohio because he really did want the death penalty. Don't let him fool you on that. Now, after he didn't get it for the first set, he calls up his buddy cop that he made friends with like back in the 70s and you know tries to start confessing to this murder. But he keeps holding key pieces of information back because he wants to make sure 100% that he can get the death penalty when he comes back. So as part of that, he starts bargaining with the investigator over the skull and the location of the skull and where it is and this and that. I mean, it's just like a sick and twisted game when you really think about it. You're talking about a human skull of a man that you murdered and you're using it as a pawn to get yourself the death penalty. Just it's bizarre. To me, it's beyond bizarre. It's just downright decrepit. Looking at the the entire murder case around Danny Boy and how this was planned out and things, it just really goes back to show that Ed has no remorse. We, we've kind of haggled with the thought that, did he think this out? Is this what he planned? You know, was he acting in defense of his daughter? Just different questions that have come up along the way. But in this case, he calculated this from 
beginning to end and knew exactly how he wanted it to play out, how he wanted to get the, the life insurance money, having him enroll in the military, he knew that that was another $50,000 that was guaranteed, having him go AWOL, everything, it was very well scripted on his part of how he wanted this to fall together. Again, Edwards, the master con man, the master of committing crime and the master of getting away with it. He was excellent at it. DNA was the only thing that stopped him. So much like the Golden State Killer, who was also excellent at getting away with crime until DNA caught him, Edwards parallels that in the sense that he was able to come up with these ways to commit murder, to commit you know all sorts of crimes and get away with them. I mean, he got caught a lot early on for his like robbery schemes and stuff, but he got smart and he figured out how to manipulate people and he figured out how to get his way around it without getting in too much trouble. So the last thing I want to mention here before we wrap up is Edwards, he got his wish. He was convicted of the Danny Boy Glockner murder. He was sentenced to death. Uh, He was sentenced to die on August 31st, 2011. However, he died on April 7th, 2011 in prison of natural causes. And last, we'll tackle next week on part three of the Ed Edwards case are... Some other murders that he may have been connected to, as well as some crazy conspiracy theories. So, until next time, stay safe. Welcome to the Killer Post Show. Craig, I've been seeing something interesting floating around the internet, and I wanted you and I to break this down. So, are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. I've got my list ready. You want to explain what we're talking about here first? Absolutely. So, the thing that I had found floating around the internet happened to do with 10 things that you hate, but everyone else loves. And I thought this was really funny. And so, I wanted to see what your list was and compare it to my list and see where we are with these because I I thought it was pretty fun. So as a follow-up to this, if any of you guys wanted to pass on your top 10 things uh, or comment on ours, feel free to hit us up at our uh, social media channels. All right, Craig, go ahead. Let's break yours down. So do you want me to just go from 10 to 1, list them all? Do you have them ranked in order? Well, kind of. Not necessarily any particular order. Eh, it doesn't matter. You can start however you want. Yeah, start however you want. Okay. I'll go down through the list and we'll talk about each one and anything that might stick out. But I really worked hard on trying to find things that I hate that other people love. And honestly, there's probably a few things on this list that other people hate just as much. So it's as true as I could get it. So starting at the top, number 10, I have the band Nickelback. <laughs> no surprise, but... They are absolutely horrible, but there are lots of people that like them, and I'm not sure why. They sell a lot of records, man. This next one is going to be tough for you, but at number nine, I have Starbucks. I am not a fan. I love Starbucks. It's so good. I'm just just a black, straight-up black coffee drinker, and for whatever reason, just their regular medium roast coffee. I'm not even sure what fancy name they give it. It just, I, I think it tastes like dog shit. I'd rather just have something off the shelf. Yeah, you probably drink that shitty Maxwell House stuff. No, well, I, it may even be <laughs> shittier than Maxwell House because we just went grocery shopping and I got the uh, Great Value brand from Walmart, the donut shop flavor. Oh, what flavor. the fuck? Okay, <laughs> get out of here. All right, okay. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> so my next one was social media filters. <laughs> All right. People love them some filters, and I get sick and tired of seeing faces with fucking puppy ears and dog noses. <laughs> I can I can get behind you on that one. That one is kind of annoying. Not going to lie. Just not for me, I guess. I don't care if you do it, but, you know, whatever. No, I'm not a fan. Next is YouTube commenters. I think everybody hates them, but I hate them with a passion. I think you know from past episodes. Meh. <laughs> That's right, meh. My next one is Animals in the House. 
I'm not a fan of pets in the house. Really? Even dogs? The dog is okay. I probably should have said cats in the house because I'm not a cat person. I'm more of a dog person. Ah, that'll get you. Cats just stink. Their litter boxes smell. No matter how much you clean them, they still smell like a meth lab. I I just hate (laughs) cats. All right. I'm with... I I can get behind that. Yeah, that's why... So we got rid of a cat because we... Uh, our son was allergic to it and I felt terrible because I don't like getting rid of pets. I think that's like one of the worst things you can do, but we were kind of forced to do it. And I would have a really hard time getting another one because I fucking hate cleaning the litter box. It's not so much that I don't, I don't mind the chore of cleaning litter box. Well, my kids normally take care of it, but like I said, no matter how much you clean it, it always smells like cat piss and that cat piss is just the worst smell ever. Yeah. And that's why I hate it. All right. What do you got next? My next is those fake nice church people. Ooh, that's a good one. You know what the people I'm talking about, the overly nice people that just... Oh, I li- I have family that's just like this. Uh, Yeah, it's it's a front. You're just a fucking liar. Straight up. Yeah. Yeah, I can't stand it. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm going to drop this one. Really <laughs> Get into trouble. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My my next one is grammar Nazis. If you don't have anything important to say, whether it's on social media or whatever, don't just chime in and correct somebody's grammar. If you don't have something in, insightful to say. Okay, I'm kind of one of these people. I don't... Okay, but first, let me just preface this by saying I barely comment on anything on social media to anyone anywhere. But in my mind, if you're going to talk shit about something or someone, you better have phrased it and worded it properly. Now, I'm not perfect either, but if you're going to sit there and go troll people on the internet or talk shit to somebody, you better have proper English. Normally, the only time I troll people on the internet is just out of, to get the comedic value, try to just get a laugh. I'm not being serious. What I'm talking about is somebody's making a very valid point and somebody doesn't agree with their side of their thinking and then they they find one word where they you know, the grammar was bad there. Yeah. There. I'm with you on that Stuff one. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you're getting nitpicky on somebody who's trying to make like a legitimate point and isn't out there just like trolling or talking shit, then yeah, I'm with you on that one. All right. What do you got next? My next one is, and you're going to be behind me a hundred percent on this one is small talk with complete strangers. Oh, I wish I would have put this on my list. <laughs> this might be my number one. I fucking hate strangers talking to me more than anything in the entire world. I hate it. It makes me uncomfortable. I'm not good at small talk. I'm also a super introvert, so that's part of my problem. It doesn't happen to me a lot because I think I have a resting bitch face most of the time, but when it does happen, it's so uncomfortable, and I absolutely hate it. Oh, I have resting bitch face, and people still want to fucking talk to me, and I don't know why. Okay, what do you got next? My next one, this is more work-related, you might be behind this one too, but I can't stand going into the office and listening to somebody spew out business speak. Like they, It's like almost like they change their complete vocabulary just to sound more intelligent at work. Oh, yeah, the fake intelligent people. Yeah, I hate that too. Yeah, annoying as shit. And my number one, which is kind of in left field compared to the rest of the list, but I like football, but I hate the NFL. I hate the NFL based on the fact that they try to move the needle on social issues, political issues. They feel like they think they're a barometer for society as a whole. This is just my opinion. It's a sport. It's a kid's game. You're paying people millions of dollars to go out there and beat their heads in. That's all it is. Wow. That was a hot take right there. All right. Our number ones are similar. So, all right, I'll start breaking mine down here. My number 10 is musicals. I fucking hate musicals more than anything in the world. I can't stand nothing more than watching a movie where people just suddenly break into song. It is the dumbest shit I've ever seen in my life. So you're not a fan of the Rocky Horror Picture Show? No, I could care less about it. The only (laughs) musical that I can think of that I can mildly stand is The Nightmare Before Christmas. For no reason. But most other musicals are just stupid. Like, I just don't get them. Yeah, I'm not a fan either. The only musicals I really kind of get any enjoyment out of are ones that are put on by like the school, high school kids doing a performance, kind of support their their need to perform. But other than that, the ones that are in movies are just horrible. I agree. 
Uh, yeah, I would. Agree. I can stand a play musical more than I can a TV like you know show or movie musical. But yeah, none of them are good in my opinion. But hey, whatever. Right. Number nine, ACDC. I can't stand that band. They're terrible. Every single song is literally the same song over and over and over, and it sucked the first time, and it still sucks. One of the most iconic bands of all time with the most record sales, but I agree. It's just remanufactured songs, every single album. And it's funny you say that because I was in between Nickelback and Kiss for my list. Kiss, I don't like Kiss either. You could put all three of them in that list, but I had to pick one. I right. pick ACDC every time. Uh, next on my list is country music. Don't get it. I think it sucks. There's very few country music songs that I can enjoy. I just really, truly do not understand that genre of music at all. But, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah, there's only a select handful of country music artists that I somewhat enjoy. And Johnny Cash being one of those. And I don't even know if you can consider him 100% country. He he came up through that through that genre, but some might say he's a little bit more alternative as well for his yeah. time. I don't know. Just that genre is lost on me, <laughs> which is funny because we live in Ohio and near rural areas and a lot of people love it. I can't stand it. As soon as it's on, it just like, it's like a meat grinder to my ears. Um, <laughs> next on my list, number seven is Friends, the show. I fucking hate this show. I think it's stupid and I can't believe people have brought it back. Like, I just don't get it. This show sucked when it was on the first time. It still sucks now. It's not a good show at all. It's terrible. You're not excited for the reunion at all? Number six on my list. (laughs) (laughs) Fight Club. I did not like this movie. One of my best friends is like obsessed with it and thinks it's the best thing ever. I think this movie's terrible. Uh, Most Brad Pitt movies suck. Uh, The only one I can think of that I even mildly enjoy is Interview with a Vampire. He's a terrible actor, and Fight Club was stupid. Yeah, Fight Club... I had to watch it a couple times because I really didn't understand what the intrigue was the first time. Second time through, I, I'm okay with it. My favorite Brad Pitt movie, and I don't know if you've ever seen it, is California, the spelled with a K. That's one of his earlier movies, and that, that movie was top-notch in my opinion. He was actually a murderer in that one, and he was traveling cross-country with a book writer who was doing some writing on serial killers. And he ended up murdering most of them. So <laughs> that was good. Interesting. I'll have to check that out. Uh, fifth on my list is golf, the sport golf. Golf is stupid and a complete waste of time. I don't understand it. It's really dumb. I love, like, like I don't mind going to the driving range and hitting golf balls, but the actual sport itself is just lost on me. It's really stupid. Maybe it's because pretty much it'll tie into my number four, but. I don't know. I just, I really don't like golf at all. It's the most boring sport of all time to watch. It's boring to play. It's just boring. I can get behind you on that. I don't hate it. I like to go out every once in a while and play, but mostly I'm just there to drive the cart around and uh, be able to drink beer when I'm doing it. So, well, see, you don't need to do, you don't need to drive a cart around to drink beer. So, and pay money to go do it on a course somewhere. It just makes no sense to me. I'm not That's a fan true. of it. That's <laughs> true. That's exactly the point to me. Like most, I don't know, guys who like use golf as a front to go avoid their families is what I feel like it is. And I don't like to avoid my family. I like my family. So I don't know. Maybe that's why. Number four on my list is getting drunk. So it ties in there with the whole drinking and golfing. I don't understand why people like getting drunk. Getting drunk to me is like so bizarre. Let's go ingest a beverage that will make you lose complete self-control and cause you a lot more problems than it's worth. And also when you go get drunk, usually you go to the bar and you spend 10 times the cost of what it would cost you to drink at home. So I just don't understand it. It's just really dumb. I don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy the side effects. I mean, the occasional beer I'm okay with, but yeah, well, drinking a beer for the taste is one thing. Like if you drink a couple drinks and you don't get drunk, you just have a couple because you like the way it tastes. That's fine. I mean, I was like that for a while. I don't drink anymore just i'm kind of allergic to it so i just don't drink but getting drunk period is just like you get dizzy you black out you feel like shit the next day you get puke like i don't know there's just nothing beneficial to it you end up getting in trouble drunk driving and there's so many negatives to it i don't understand why anybody does it but hey apparently i'm in the minority people love it 
Yeah. Last time I was like truly drunk and sick drunk was about six years ago. And it cost me a pair of shoes too, because I puked all over those. Yeah, that's not good. (laughs) All right. Third on my list is buffets. Buffets are fucking gross. Enough said. I'm 100% behind you on that one. Second on my list is Facebook. I hate Facebook, the company. I understand that they own Instagram. Facebook's an evil corporation run by an evil CEO. They're just a cesspool of filth. I hate them. I really don't like using their social media channels, but it's sort of a necessary evil for what we do. Not a fan. I'm not a fan either, and I'm actually not on Facebook, so I 100% agree. And talking about evil and tracking and eavesdropping on your private life, I mean, I understand when you go out to a search engine and you throw something in that you're giving them data to try to fall back on, but here lately it's been crazy where I've just did some searches on, because of this whole COVID-19 thing, do some research on N95 masks, different type of masks. And then when I go to our show page on Instagram, I'm inundated with these ads for different types of N95 masks. It's just convenient how everything ties together between Google and Facebook and Instagram and all of that. Yeah, it's annoying. And... Last on my list, which people are really going to hate me for this. This is like sacrilege in some regions of the country. I hate NCAA sports more than anything. Oof. So this is sort of counter to what you were saying with the NFL. I hate NCAA football the most. And I will tell you why. Because there is literally no competition in the fucking sport until the playoffs. What is the point? Okay, I'm Ohio State and I'm going to schedule Akron U a Mac school that has zero chance of beating me. I'm going to schedule about four of those. I'm going to schedule like two games a year that are actually hard. And I'm going to try and pump up my stats to get into the playoffs that are voted on by a bunch of tools. This makes no fucking sense to me. The sport is stupid. The real shows, the NFL, why are the rules different? It's just dumb. Like, come on. I don't know. It just makes no sense to me. I hate it. I can't say that I hate it, but I understand your points about, each conference, every conference does it, whether it's Big Ten, whether it's SEC. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're a big school, you should all have to play each other. You shouldn't be allowed to schedule these little tiny piddly schools. Like, it just makes no sense to me why you do that. Maybe do some preseason games with those schools to get yourself geared up to play the season. But we don't need those as games. Like, I have zero interest in investing in any minutes of my day watching that shit. It's just garbage football. Who cares? Yeah, and the only argument as to why those games are played is, oh, look, Ohio State is helping this college, college's athletic fund because Ohio State pays Ohio University a million dollars to play that game. And that, in some cases, for those smaller schools, is their entire athletic budget. And Ohio State is funding that. And they'll say, well, that's great. Well, let's focus on academics at those colleges that aren't good enough to play Ohio State. How about that? That's that's truly what drives me crazy is there seems to be little to zero focus on academics where you, you hear these stories. I I can't remember the players or what had happened, but you hear this tough story about, hey, this kid got into trouble off the field. He's getting kicked off the football team. Oh, no, his life is over. He's got to go back to a normal nine to five job. No, you don't. You were in college. Somehow you got there. Why not? finish your education and get, you know, a normal job. And why put 100% of your effort into exceeding on the football field and hopefully in the slim chance getting drafted into the NFL? It seems counterintuitive to me. Yeah, I'm just not, I'm just not a fan of the way they structure the sport. Like the football itself is fine. I love football, but like just the way that they run it just really, really baffles me. And I just don't feel invested in it. And the players end up trying to get to the NFL anyway, because that's where they're trying to go. And so why it's like, you know, it's like being a huge fan of minor league baseball. Like no one's like favorite thing in the world is their minor league baseball team. There's very few people. And NCAA is basically minor league NFL because they don't have a minor league. But that's exactly what it is. It's the farm system, the development system for the NFL. So why are you investing all this time in, in NCAA when they don't even, I mean, they don't have to pay their players. Like they don't have to, there's so much just cruft around it that I just don't like. I don't know. Call me a curmudgeon. 
Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. What there is a big push right now to make sure the players get paid or funded in a certain way. Do you think that that's it's not going to make things any better? But I mean, they're making millions of dollars off of these kids while they're on the field, and what are they offering them? Oh, you you get a full ride to college and you get all your shit paid for. Oh, what twenty five thirty grand a year? I don't necessarily think that the colleges should have to pay the kids, but they should let the kids be able to get paid. Like, if I can go get an endorsement deal or if I can go do this or that, then let me. I agree. I think they should be able to get endorsement deals. And I also think there should not be any regulation on if a kid is good enough to play at the professional level, they should be able to skip college completely. I mean, I know LeBron James did that when he came right out of high school, right into the NBA. Kobe Bryant did the same thing. And there are several football players that did. Well, yeah, the college should not have any hand in getting money from kids who were great high school athletes who could transition straight to the pros. Like, where the fuck does that come from? Like, why does the NCAA suddenly get you to be able to come to their program and to their school where they rake in a shitload of money off of your back and your hard work? Like, where is that a thing? <laughs> you know? That's exactly it. They, If you go straight to professional, you go straight to the professional level and skip college, they're missing out on the millions of dollars of revenue that you could potentially generate because you create a buzz around their team. And that they weren't going to pay you a dime for. So they missed their free money. I mean, come on. What the fuck kind of deal is that? That's bullshit if I've ever heard of it. So anyway, yeah, that's my top 10. We'll catch you guys next time. See ya. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.